0: From my personal experience, that has taken me around the world at least 62 times, I have seen how the world over, the world over, regardless of culture or place, that people long for security. The world over, they long for security. Whether it be financial security, and whether it would be job security, or be a health security, or be national security, or a security in our homes all people, the world over, no matter how rich they may be, no matter how famous they may be, no matter how powerful they may be, no matter how much they claim to be self-sufficient, no one ever feels totally secure. And that is why we have alarm systems in our homes. That's why we have police and an army. That's why we have professional financial advisors to help us guard against the pitfalls of life. We we have not yet discovered the secret for feeling of totally secure. Most people would not admit it. They would not admit it publicly. But most people long for eternal security. They do. Try to speak to enough of them to realize that this is the case. Most of them would tell there is an annoying feeling that God is going to judge them for their sin. If you talk to them and they be honest enough and open up to you, they will tell you. And that is why they end up trying to form some coping mechanism with that knowing feeling. Coping mechanism. They convince themselves that they can escape the judgment of God. They deal with that inner spiritual insecurity by devising countless, countless false ideals and ideas and philosophies to help them think that they can escape the punishment that they internally know they're going to face and that they deserve. So they convince themselves that they're basically good, and because they're good, they're going to make it in the end. They try to convince themselves that God is too good and loving to judge them, that somehow if they can do enough charity work that will outweigh all the bad they're doing— Others say that God is too loving to send them to hell. Still others insist that there is no God, and when they die, they just die. You can see that I've been talking to a lot of secular people. I asked a friend of mine recently, why did he convince himself that when he dies, he dies, and that's the end of it? And in his honest moment, he said to me, he said, otherwise... I would go crazy worrying about what's after death. And so when I offered to show him the way of salvation and joy and peace and forgiveness, he declined. He said, if there is a life after death, I'll tell God that I knew you. I said, knew me? They'll want to help you one bit. <laughs> In the last message… The Apostle Paul tells us that the moralists, the moralists, people who think they're good and they're better than others, and they compare themselves with the worst in society and say, well, I'm not as bad. And he's talking about these moralists, both Jews and Gentiles, by the way. He said they will be brought before the courts of justice of heaven, before the heavenly judge at the end times. He said neither of them have any basis or should have any basis for security. Any security that they may devise to convince themselves is a false sense of security. Any security that they devise other than being saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ is a false sense of security. And here, beginning in this passage, the Apostle Paul turns from talking to the moralists, both Jews and Gentiles, and he focuses exclusively upon the Jewish people. Of his day, the religionists, those people of the covenant. Why? He said, because they have greater measure of light. They have greater measure of God's knowledge. They have greater measure of God's blessings. They have greater measure of privilege to know God. And so, with all of that, he says, comes a stricter judgment is going to come a a stricter accountability. And therefore, he turns onto them like a laser beam in order to remind them that any security they have, other than coming to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a false sense of security. And that is why James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, (laughs) warns us not to be anxious to be teachers. (laughs) Why? Because those of us who take upon our lips the teaching of the Word of God, we're going to be judged, and we're going to be held accountable in a far stricter way than the average person. Paul is basically shattering, shattering their false sense of security in regard to their heritage. And secondly, he warns them of not shrinking their personal responsibility. And then he highlights The only basis for their accountability. And these are the three things we're going to look at today. Three things that we can see in this passage false sense of security, verses 17 to 29, personal responsibility, chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, accountability, chapter 3, verse 9 to 18. First, he's saying it is dangerous. It is dangerous. To have this false sense of security. In fact, if it is so dangerous to have a false sense of security about your job, or about your finances, or about your future, in fact, not anywhere near as dangerous as having a false sense of spiritual security. Hear me right, please. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to where you're going to spend your forever You cannot count on anyone or anything other than faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else will be false sense of security. Baptism will not save you. Church affiliation will not save you. Going to Mass and confession will not save you. Going to church once a month or even ten times a day will not save you. Only a complete faith and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ will save you eternally. The Jews at the time of Paul had this false sense of security that stemmed from the fact that they know all about God, that they know all about the law, that they know all about their history and God's dealing with them, that they know all about the temple, that they know all about what God has permitted, and what God has forbade. (laughs) But all of that knowledge, Paul is saying, only gave them a false sense of security. Verse 19, you are confident that you yourselves are guides to the blind and the light to those in darkness? Here's the most fantastic thing and fantastic irony. Being light to the Gentiles or those in the darkness is what God wanted Israel to be. That's what He called them to be, to be a light to the nations, to be light to the Gentiles. But instead of being light to the world, these realized that being a Jew is sufficient. It's like a Christian, I'm saved and sanctified, I don't have to do anything. And they resisted the sharing of God's knowledge with the others. (laughs) In fact, many of them Joined the darkness. They enjoyed it too much. See, it's throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. Beloved, there are so many professing Christians today who think that they can live any which way they want. If they tip their hat to God once a week or whatever, they're okay. I had a conversation again not long ago with a professing Christian. And I said to him, well, on what basis will God let you into His heaven? He said, well, I have been a member of such and such church for 40 years. Now, I know the church, but I didn't focus on that. I just let that go. (laughs) I said, well, how often do you go? He said, well, I go a few times a year, uh, but I was baptized as a baby in that church, and I give them a thousand bucks a year to just keep my name in the books for two reasons. One, so they can do my funeral, and two— They may be able to help me with the man upstairs. Now, beloved, if you don't go out very much, (laughs) this is more common than you realize. You'll be stunned by the number of people who think this way. You'll be stunned. The Apostle Paul, having dealt with the moralists in Roman society, he turns his attention to the religionists of his day. Instead of allowing what the prophets have been saying to them in their Bible about pride and guard against pride, they allowed that very pride to possess them. You see, when Jesus said to the Jews in John chapter 8, verse 31, when he said to them, If you abide in my word, you will be truly my disciples. (laughs) And you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free, you know what happened? Most of you know they got apathy. You know what I mean by that? They got apathy. They really w- w- became angry, and they said, "We are the descendants of Abraham. We're always free. We're not slaves." <laughs> Listen, this is pure fantasy. It is really fantastic when you think about it. They double slaves. They were slaves to sin, and they also slaves to Rome. <laughs> they were not free. But Jesus went on to say to them, verse 34, John chapter 8, 34, everyone who keeps on committing sin is a slave to sin. <laughs> and Abraham won't help you one bit. Now, the last part is a of thing, not, not in the Bible. Here's what Jesus is saying, which is exactly what Paul is saying here. Religious heritage, family connections, ethnic heritage… All of that blinded them to their real needs. It really did. All of this created a false sense of security. Why? Because having the Old Testament and being circumcised and practicing some religious rituals, uh, being physically descendant of Abraham, all of that will not help them escape from the judgment of God. Listen to me. In the same way today, believing in the existence of God will not get you to heaven. The devil, the Bible said, believes. He not only believes, he trembles. Something we don't do these days. Being baptized as an infant is not going to get you to heaven. Being baptized as an adult, just with water, without the heart being circumcised, being born again, will not get you to heaven. Going to confession and mass every week will not get you to heaven. Trying to be an out-and-out religious person will not get you to heaven. Denying the power of God that changes lives and that can change your life. Denying the power of God to transform you. Wanting to live any which way you want to live and want God to give in to you and say, okay, this is the way you are. I'll leave you alone. You're fine thinking uh, that believing in Jesus Christ just gives you a license to live in sin against His Word, <laughs> uh, shopping around until you find a pastor who agrees with you, none of that is going to help you. None of that's going to help you. Only when you place all of your sins and guilt under the blood of Jesus Christ will He deliver you here and now and for all of eternity. Only when you acknowledge that you are helpless without His power. Only when you close yourself with His transforming power every moment of every day will you be set free. As most of us who came to the Lord from sin and guilt can testify, any earthly connection other than trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ will only give you a false sense of security. Secondly, nothing and no one will be able to absolve you from your personal responsibility. Look at verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3. By the way, I want to make something very clear at the outset before I get going here, okay? The Mosaic Law and the Old Testament are important. Paul is not saying they're not important. Listen to me very carefully. This is important because they are God-given. Therefore, they are important. In fact, I'm going to make a startling statement. I'm going to be startling to some of you. You can be saved by keeping the law. I told you you're going to be startled. You can be saved by keeping the law. Am I right? Yeah, of course I'm right. (laughs) You did not mishear me at all. You heard me right. You can be saved by keeping the law 24-7 all of your life. Hello. Even if you say, like so many people that I talk to, and say, well, you know, I'm going to be in heaven because I keep the golden rule. Really? Do unto others what you want to do to yourself. Number one, nobody ever kept the golden rule perfectly anyway. It's wide open for abuse. It's just a a red herring. The law of God, beloved, is perfect. Can you say that with me? The law of God is perfect, and it is used by God to remind us of how sinful we are. And the commandments show us how desperately we need a perfect Savior to save us, because we cannot save ourselves. The only Savior who kept all of the law all of the time, perfectly, for thirty-three and one-third of a year. Beloved, the task of the law is to tell us to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. That's the task of the law, to turn to God for salvation, because we can do it. To turn to God for mercy and grace. To turn to God for true righteousness that is right standing with Him. The law should send us running to Christ, and that is why they do not want to see the Ten Commandments in public, because they know if people see them, they recognize they are sinners, and they need a Savior, and they will run to Christ, and they don't want that. I often tell parents that the reason we don't call infant baptism christening is because the term means making a little Christian out of them. But that's not what covenant baptism is all about. In reality, infant baptism, or as a household baptism which occurred in the book of Acts again and again and again, which we follow, is giving the child the privilege of growing up to know God's plan of salvation. That is an incredible leg up from a person who's totally unaware of anything about God. Yet that child, any child, must at some point when they grow up to make their own profession of faith. And here in chapter 3 of Romans, Paul anticipates his fellow Jews' objections. Paul would have made a fantastic lawyer. I mean, he anticipated their objections. And he said, what advantage is there for being a, a Jew? What value is physical circumcision? Now, this is not a frivolous objection, by the way, on the part of those objecting to Paul. Listen carefully. Today we would parcel that question this way. What value is growing up in the church? What value is church attendance? What value is infant baptism or participating at communion, if they were not necessary for salvation? And that is a valid question. It's a valid question. For the Jew, knowing the Old Testament gave them a tremendous advantage. Look how Paul had to really explain to first the Old Covenant, then the New Covenant, and how the New Testament fulfilling the Old. He didn't have to do that with the Jews. And in the same way, in the Christian community, a child growing up in a Christian home is a tremendous advantage. It's a wonderful advantage. For a Jew, in knowing the Old Testament, He would have learned about the character of God, the love of God, the justice of God, and more importantly, God's promise of the coming Messiah. All that was there, something a Gentile did not know and had to start from below zero. Tragically, the Jews had focused so much of their attention on their privileges, very little attention their responsibilities. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's reminding them of their personal responsibility. Today, this is happening in a professing church all over the place, yet no one can shrug off his or her personal responsibility for the need to know and believe and obey the truth of the gospel. Listen to me. We are thankful for a Christian family upbringing. We are thankful for Bible believing churches. We are thankful for baptism and communion. All remind us again and again and again that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But none of these, none of these will replace or take away the absolute necessity of each person's responsibility when they stand before a holy God on that great day. Every, single, every individual will stand before the God of heaven. False sense of security, personal responsibility, thirdly, accountability. Look at verses 9 to 18 of chapter 3 of Romans. In the last message, I told you about the Roman moralist slash philosopher Seneca. Here's what Seneca said. I want you to listen very carefully, because this is an amazing words coming from the lips of a man who did not know Jesus, did not know God. He said, every guilty person is his own hangman. Let me repeat that. Every guilty person is his own hangman. Here's the problem today. Guilt is quietly destroying millions of lives. Guilt is driving people to all forms of addictions. Guilt is driving a lot of people into despair and even insanity. Guilt is leading more and more young people into suicide. And beloved, listen to me, we can play all of the philosophical blame game all we want, but at the end of the day, no one, no one, no one escapes the inner feeling of guilt. Trust me when I tell you this. You can watch them partying hard, having fun, and they look very happy, but I promise you, when the lights are off and they're all alone, they are guilt-stricken. They're guilt-stricken, just as we saw in the last message, by virtue of the fact that the law of God written on the heart of his creation— it's what the Bible said, but also I have seen it experientially. In fact, the more we have sophisticated psychological services in society, the more guilt-ridden society becomes. My son Jonathan, who's ministering in Sydney, Australia, was telling me the other day and that even though I know the country, they're kind of a fun-loving people, they're kind of laissez-faire uh, society, that they just like… You know, they just like to have fun. They're very laid back. He's telling me that in the papers and in the news that depression among young people is now has become epidemic, and they don't know how to cope with it. They don't know how to deal with it. And do you know the truly heart wrenching, heart wrenching situation is when people want to be rid of that guilt. And they don't know how. To me, this is a horrible nightmare. It's a horrible nightmare. The more they seek human solutions, the deeper they sink into despair. Beloved, here's the truth guilt is a mere symptom of the problem. The problem is sin. But they want to call it everything except that. (laughs) But that is it, that's the disease. And my beloved friends, all of the secular counseling in the world is not going to help alleviate that guilt or sin. At best, secular counseling will offer temporary relief. The best. But in the long run, the blame game will intensify the guilt. You say, why? Because It adds dishonesty to the sin which is the cause of guilt from the first place. Here's a fact. All of us, your pastor included, have suffered from this dreadful pain of guilt. We all have experienced it in the past. And all of us who have experienced the joy of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can testify that until sin is dealt with, permanent relief from guilt becomes impossible. It becomes impossible. That is why the word gospel means good news. <laughs> and we're sitting on it and we're not sharing it. It means good news. What is that good news is that not only sin, but also guilt that stems from sin can be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen belongs here. Barnhouse, a wonderful preacher in Pennsylvania many years ago, made this statement. He said, Our society is like a little boy who swears with tears that he has not been anywhere near the jar of jam. He, with air of outraged innocence, pleads the righteous, rightness of his position, while at the same time he is totally oblivious to the fact that there is jam on his shirt, jam on his chin, and jam on his fingernails. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He is aware of man's disposition to deny sin and try to deal with guilt of sin some other way. To refuse to be held accountable for their actions. And so he says, all of the denying in the world will not absolve you from accountability. Look at Romans 3, 10 to 18. Coming toward the end now, watch the last few verses. Here Paul introduces evidence, evidence presented before the courts of heaven, evidence that says no matter how much people deny their accountability, they are guilty as charged. All of the moralists among both Jews and Gentiles have 13 counts of indictment against them. Please look with me, verse 10 particularly, verse 10, there is no one, not even one. And he repeats that six times, there is no one, not even one. Say it with me, there is no one, not even one. Those thirteen charges and indictments are parceled under three categories. Verses 10 to 12, indictment against our character. Verses 13 to 14, indictment against our speech, our words. And verses 15 to 16, indictment against our conduct. And the verdict is this. The person who is not redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross has no defense. They're guilty as charged. I want to tell you this as I conclude. Many years ago, in the city of Chicago, they held what was called the Parliament on World Religions, and it was done to coincide with the World Fair that was held in Chicago that year. At that Parliament of Religions, all the major ethnic religions were represented, such as Hinduism and, and Buddhism and Shintoism, all of the rest, of, all of the isms, they were all there. Each representative of these religions got up one by one, one by one, the Confucianists, uh, uh, the Muslims, and each one explained away the philosophy of life and the essence of their religion. Then came the turn Of the man who was selected to speak on behalf of the Christian faith, a man by the name of Joseph Cook from the city of Boston. He was selected for that occasion. Here's what he said, and I'm going to read it word for word because I don't want to miss it. He said, Here is Lady Macbeth, hand-stained with the foul murder of Duncan. See her as she permeates through the holes and the corridors of her palatial home, stopping and crying, Out, curse to spot, out, I say, will these hands ever be clean? Then he turned to those panel at the platform. Dr. Joseph Cook asked the question Can any of you who are so anxious to propagate your religious systems? Offer any cleansing efficacy for sin and guilt for Lady Macbeth. An oppressive silence was maintained by all. And then he said, Only the blood of Jesus Christ can purge the conscience of sin and guilt to serving the living God. I want to make a statement. I hope you memorize it. In my final statement, you must understand that we are not saved by obedience to Christ. We obey Christ because we are saved. I want you to say that with me. We are not saved by obedience to Christ. We are obedient to Christ because we are saved by Christ.